Hi everyone. Right, uh, if you open your um, Bible to Matthew 26 and verse 31. And um, I, I don't know what you do in your, your personal times with God, but one of the things I like to do is work through have a reading scheme that takes me through the Bible um, you know, so that I get all of it, uh, not just the bits that are particularly my focus at the moment for leading, but you know, so that I'm kind of opening myself up to all of it. And um, this is, at the moment, the, the scheme I'm using is working through Matthew, and we're getting to the end, which kind of fits with the week leading up to Easter. And... Um, this is just a very short passage, and it's about uh, Jesus and Peter. So I'm reading from verse 31 to 35. Then Jesus told them, this very night you'll all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I've risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. So I uh, think it's great as we hit the week leading up to Easter, to have attention on Jesus, but also attention on the disciples. No. Um, because we're disciples too, and what's written about them is written for us. Jesus is, you know, the disciples, I don't know what they must be feeling. Because Jesus has come into Jerusalem and done what he's never done before. He's gone into the uh, temple and acted like he owned it and just so that we get the picture I want you to imagine um, a young-ish person about 33 going into Sheffield Cathedral one morning while the dean and chapter are doing their stuff in one of the side chapels and um, maybe it's you and as you as you go in hundreds of people come with you and they're just desperate to spend time with you, just desperate. And they completely ignore the dean and the chapter and they gather around you. And worse, the security and hospitality staff, instead of ch showing you the door, they're on the front row listening. And nobody's paying any attention at all to the staff. And um, then you start telling nasty stories about a cruel dean and chapter coming to a very sticky end. And then when they get really annoyed and come and ask you questions, you answer them and you ask them a question that they can't answer. And then to by now about 600 people in the building cramming to get in and lots more outside, you warn them about the hypocrisy and the spirituality of the dean and the chapter and how poisonous and dangerous it is. And then... You say seven woes, you pick out seven spiritual and character flaws of the dean and the chapter, and you go through them one by one, and 
uh, you use words like children of hell and snakes and vipers. And um, I mean, you can imagine, and it's, it's not just the dean and the chapter who don't have any power really in our culture. These, these are not just the dean and the chapter. They're the mayor and the government. You know, they're really, really important and powerful people. The disciples are not stupid. If you do that, the leaders are going to get you. And generally speaking, you'll only do that as a leader of a popular movement when you're ready to take over. So when they gather for the Last Supper, you know, Jesus has upped the conference. There's no coming back from it now. There's no coming back. What's he going to say? Because it's Passover. I say unto you, at midnight, the angel of death is going to fly over their homes and every one of them is going to drop dead. And when we've got pure spiritual leadership, we're going to take the Romans. You know, maybe, I don't know what they were expecting, but it isn't what they got. What they got was more stuff about Jesus dying. Stuff about this is my body, this is my blood. This is a new covenant of forgiveness for sins. Nothing about the leaders at all except Jesus saying he's going to die, and they just don't get it. And then Jesus makes it even worse because he says, and you are going to betray me. So, you know, everybody's going to run away. I'm going to be on my own. So it's not a popular movement to put aside the high priest and deal with the Romans. Peter says, well, you know, I won't. And I'm sure that in his mind, he's got kind of Jesus leading the charge and Peter next to him. And if they go down fighting, you know, then they go down fighting. Um, but, but Jesus just says, no, it's prophesied. I will strike the shepherd and the flock will be scattered. And um, you're all going to run away. And all the disciples say the same, but it's worse for Peter because his Denial is more deliberate and it's three times and it's kind of after a specific warning by Jesus. So for Peter, it's worse. They all say the same, but Peter's the most vehement and uh, so it's worse for him. And um, the, th the things that really strike me about that are the courage that Jesus showed in raising the stakes like that because he knew exactly what he was doing. You know, there's no question. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He knew he had to make the choice between believing in him and not believing that he was the Messiah that stark so that the, the leaders would have a choice they could not avoid to join the Jesus movement or destroy Jesus. And, you know, because it's all tied up with their power and their status and all of that. There isn't really any question about what they're going to do with that. So he, Jesus knew what he was doing by raising the stakes like that. And the disciples just didn't have a clue because they didn't want to think about a different future than the one they had in their heads, which was Jesus is king and, you know, we're the prime minister in the cabinet and it's just going to be awesome, guys. Um, they didn't want to think about a different future than that. They got a pathway in their head. And Jesus tried really hard, really hard with them, time after time. 
to kind of reorientate them. Look, it's not going to happen like you think. In many different ways, he talked about leadership. You know, you know how the, the Gentiles do it with patronage and, you know, all like that. I don't want you to lead like that. So it wasn't just in, I'm going to die. It was thing after thing after thing, deconstructing the future they had in their heads. But they couldn't hear it. They, they, they couldn't get it. Because they wanted something that had far less pain in it and far more success and was far easier than the path of the cross. So that brings me right down to me and what you know I'm expecting and what I want and whether I let the word of God and the Holy Spirit reorientate my thinking, my feeling, my life, my expectations to what God actually wants to do with me now rather than the kind of plan I've got in my head. And there's, you know, there's nothing wrong with having plans in our heads. You can't lead effectively. You, you're all leaders here. You can't lead effectively unless you can do some strategy. You know, I think we'll try and do this and then we'll try and do that. And that's fine. There's, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But they got trapped in it. That, you know, they, they had a pathway mapped out for what this... And, and they could not let the Holy Spirit and the word of God through Jesus reorientate their life. I, I don't think we should blame them too much. I mean, the, the thing that Jesus was going to do on the cross was so enormous. I don't think any human being could grasp it. Um, but, but we're kind of post the cross. But we're also people and we like our plans and we like what's in our heads. And how open am I and you to letting the Holy Spirit and the word of God deconstruct your plans and give you something else instead? And I, I love the way you started this morning and when with thankfulness, because I think that's such a key to having a soft heart to the Holy Spirit. And um, I find for myself a lot of the time I'm not thankful, not at all. I mean, I should be. I haven't got anything to not be thankful about. I should be, but I'm not, you know. It's raining and I don't want to get up, you know. Just not very thankful. And um, I find when that happens, if I speak thankfulness out, whether I feel it or not, it begins to make a difference. It doesn't, you know, it's not like one thankful word and then my smiling all over my face. But as I begin to speak thankfulness out, my heart, my orientation begins to change. It's such a good practice. And to commend it to you, especially when you don't feel like doing it, just speaking out thankfulness is a powerful thing to do because it kind of, your mouth is saying what's actually true, even if the rest of you can't quite line up with it. So I have two questions really to finish with what's your actual practice in terms of thankfulness? Not what you know you ought to do, but what's your actual practice with the discipline of thankfulness? And are you praying something like, God, you have permission to reorientate what I'm expecting and looking for into something else? The kind of, you know, I quite like the, the open hands as a kind of gesture before God because it, 
it kind of says, well, it's, you know, it's yours. It's yours, God. Shall we pray? Jesus, it's difficult to comprehend your courage and your love in what you did in the days leading up to the cross. And would you expand our hearts and our understanding a bit more of who you are and what you do? And God, would you give us a humble, real practice of thanksgiving? Just that that's characteristic of us as individuals, as us, as a group here, of us as a church. And God, would you give us the gift of soft hearts, hard heads but soft hearts, that will let you change our perspective. Amen.